Before we get going this week, I thought I'd just remind you that I'm a certified business strategist who's been in property for over 25 years. I know my clients shortcut their success by being laser focused through strategy and mentoring, as no one business model fits us all because funding, geography, skill set, it all plays a part in deciding what works for you. Getting it wrong can definitely damage your wealth. If you're serious about property, then your first step is a call with me. Nothing more difficult than following the link in the show notes to book it. Hello, and welcome to the Property Solopreneur podcast, a show for property investors and developers who want to build and grow their own profitable businesses. I'm sharing with you my decades of property experience and interviewing many other successful property people who are happy to share their varied and priceless knowledge freely. Business doesn't need to be hard, and nor do you need to be lucky. But as a certified strategist, I know you need a plan to work to. And a good start is by listening to other people's successes and failures. Why reinvent the wheel? This allows us to have a more in-depth knowledge of the wider property world. Welcome to this week's episode of The Property Solopreneur. Commercial to residential conversions. For many of us, that sounds like something we probably will never do. It's a bit big. I'm not sure I have the experience or the knowledge. Yet I think it is actually something that most of us should really get to grips with and understand more about. Why? Because I think that it's more difficult to get planning in some areas for new homes. Yet we've got towns and cities full of buildings that are not going to be used in the same way they were before. And are just ripe for conversion so that people can breathe life back into the cities and use those buildings again. Now, if you don't think that you know enough or you are possibly someone who could do that, then start finding people who are already in it and listening to their experiences. And my guest today, Tina Collins, is one of those landlords who never in a blue moon thought they'd be doing commercial to residential conversions a few years ago. But now that they've found the subject, absolutely adore the genre. So, Tina, welcome to the Property Solopreneur. And for those of you who've not met Tina, can you tell them a little bit about yourself? So, well, first of all, thank you very much, Rachel. I started in property about 20 years ago and I inherited a property. And that sounds very glamorous, but actually I inherited a property with no running water, no sewage, and my great uncle lived in it. And I basically had to do a full refurb on it before I could even get lending on it. I had to borrow quite a lot of money to do it. But that gave me a really good learning. So that was about 20 years ago. And then ever since then, I'd like to tell this wonderful, glamorous story about how I've grown my business. But ultimately, I just saved and saved and saved. And every time I could afford a new property, when I'd got the pot there, I brought one. And then over that time, I've grown a portfolio. And I did all this while I had a job. And then about five, five uh, it might be six years ago, about five years ago, actually, then I went full-time out of my job and into property because I'd built that portfolio up, I guess, as a hobby. But yeah, let's see, there's two stages. There's the hobby stage and then you go full-time into it and then it, it became a business. Absolutely. And that's when your eyes were open because you realised that there was this underground of people all talking property and discussing things that just blew your mind, didn't didn't it? Yeah, I... I done it all on my own I, I just as I said I just saved the money and bought when I could and I I didn't buy with knowledge I brought with gut on what I knew what rented I knew how to 
keep a house up to date and I just knew my area really well. And then I needed to professionalize it and take it into a business. And then you realize there's all these other people doing that. And to be honest, I just went to, uh, I mainly started on YouTube and every night for a year, I'd go on YouTube every night and just learn. I didn't know about investment. I didn't know. I did it because I loved it. I didn't do it because I had this goal of, oh, I need to earn this per month or I need to, I just grew because I could. And so I went to, um, I was on YouTube every night and I just learned, and I had books and books and books of just notes on how does it really work? How does all this actually work? And how do people actually make a living out of it over it just being a hobby as it was to me? Actually, and that's when you realised, of course, that you can do more than one thing at once and you can expand. And since being, because you were very hands-on, and we'll come back to that later, um, uh, landlord, you then discovered that you could flip and, you know, that kind of thing. And with people think flipping is so easy, but actually there's so many different parts to it. But, you know, your first flip was successful and, you know, you, you've gradually got more and more successful at doing flips. And then suddenly you've gone, hang on a second, commercial to residential. Yes, it's the buzzword at the moment, but there's a possibility that I can do it. And you teamed up with a friend, Arthur Dalimar. And this is one of the reasons I came to see you in Swindon last year, because it was a very, very exciting project. You really didn't take a small project as your first go in this area, did you? Well, actually, it wasn't my first go because I'd done the set. I'd done it on my own before. So I'd done commercial to residential before in Bristol. It was the same thing. I took a workwear shop and then I split it into uh, two flats and I kept a commercial in that one. All right. So I'd done that on my own first um, and that was in Bristol. And then when um, Arthur approached me about working together with him on this one, I felt I could... I didn't want to join venture with anyone that I couldn't bring plenty to the table. And because this, again, was a bit like the one I'd just done, which was to break it down into three separate parts, even though with this one we did full resi, whereas my previous one I kept commercial in it. I just knew I could bring plenty to the table because of the experience I'd had. So my very first one was in Bristol. Um, and it was that one where I divided it up into three and had kept a commercial. Because I remember you doing that, but it never struck me as being what I would call a commercial treasure because it was just so normal. That there was nothing dramatic about it. And I suppose that's that's the thing about doing commercial residential. It can be very straightforward, very ordinary, nothing difficult or odd odd. Whereas the one you did with Arthur was just such an amazing project because what did it start out as when you bought the whole thing? So it started as the funeral directors. I mean, what a start. But I have to admit, I'm going to really disappoint you as well, Rachel. There was no dead bodies kept there. So I'm sorry. It's, I, I feel like that was going to be an amazing story and there's all these dead bodies everywhere. <laughs> you opened a cupboard and there it was. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fresh concrete all over the floor where they couldn't bother to move them, all that sort of stuff. No, no, no. no, no, no. Um, it was just their offices. So, yeah, it, 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 they kept the body somewhere else. But even so, it was an amazingly odd-shaped building, wasn't it? And that, again, I think was one of the reasons I thought it was such an amazing project because it it had nooks and crannies. It had, you know, uh, a part, the car parking went into a completely different project and, and was sold off plan and all the rest of it. And then you were left with what to the outside world looked like a terrace, didn't it? Yeah. So it's in Old Town in Swindon and it's a, it's a, in a, it's on the end of a row of terraced houses. I already own property on that 
row and so does Arthur. So we knew the terrace really well and it's the end one. So it stretches up the side of the road that goes up the side. So it was perfect for conversion. I think you have to work with a building. There's no point working against a building. And 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 what I see a lot of developers do is, is they work to minimum space standards, but they cram it in. Yeah. You don't end up with a good product if you cram it in. So I think the building just told us what we could do with it because it had three separate entrances already. So ultimately, that kind of dictates you what you can do with it. And um, yeah, it was absolutely perfect for turning it to Resi. And also it had, you were turning it into something very modern, something people could live in. And yet it had an incredible old word, well, charm about it because you kept the period features, didn't you? And which meant that actually, certainly on some of the ground floor bits, you had strange walls and bends and nooks, didn't you? Yeah. It, again, when you buy somewhere that already exists, you are given a defined box that you have to work in. And then you have to make the decisions one, what can I cut it up into? And two, how do I get the best out of the building? And that includes, well, where does the light fall out of the windows when the sun comes round? What Do I take this wall out? Do I need this wall? Is the value there to take this wall out? Because everything costs money. Yes. It's always that balance of, does it cost, is, is the end result going to make more money than it is to do the job? Yep. And it's always that balance you're looking at. And in my eyes also, I'm not there to rip buildings apart. I am there to give that building a new lease of life to hopefully make it last longer than it ever would have done, which is why the quality of work is so important to me as well. Um, and Arthur's the same on that. It has to be really good quality workmanship. Even the stuff you can't see has yeah. to be good quality workmanship. And this is where you work with a building so that it keeps it keeps giving and you've given it a new lease of life. And, and that's where the, the passion comes from. Absolutely. And I know that, you know, there were a, there was a set of plans drawn up, but they weren't necessarily completely stuck to you, were they? Because I know you had one kitchen where you managed, once you were in there, you thought, hang on a second, the layout could work differently. A lot of people talk about good design. And I think people think good design comes from where you put your sofa and the cushions and all that sort of thing. But good design is literally from the point where you walk in through a door and you you feel good design. You you feel how it, how a property should flow. You feel how you would live in it. And good design has to start from there onwards. Now, architects can't always achieve that, especially if you are working, if you're looking at a price point on an architect where they're used to churning out boxes, which, and they're great to work with, but then it's worth going back over that and going, well, how can I make this building really work? How can I, it, it, how can I bring it alive? how you will live in it and so although we had the plans drawn in one way once we got in there it was apparent in the in one of the flats we totally swapped the whole flat around once we felt the space yes we, the lounge had to be where the bedroom was because the light was much better and, and it felt cozy to be in and then the we could move the bathroom around because the bathroom did go through the bedroom and we wanted it to have its own access so we, we did totally change the layouts once we had got in there on how it felt walking through the property. And then little things lead on from that because, you know, these weren't, um, you know, top of the range properties which would only be available for the ultra rich. These were affordable in that anyone could buy them, basically. But having said that, you didn't ignore design features. So I was 
for instance, blown away by the radiators. What difference do you think these little touches make to not only how you felt about doing the project, but the people who came and looked around hoping to buy them? So again, it's always back to what I spend has to equal higher amount at the end. So there's no point you going out and buying a load of posh radiators to go in a development like we did. However, my theory is, and I don't know if there's any research on this, but when the end user is always has an element of feel to it, whether you're a tenant, whether you're a homeowner, even in commercial, in office space and things like that, there's a feel that people will pay for. And when you're walking around a building, there's also moments in a building. And I'm always looking to identify those moments right off plan. So when you walk into a building, I've noticed there are natural places where everyone stops. So for instance, you're going through the door and then you'll generally stop for a moment and take in what you can see. Yep. And then in our flat that was upstairs, you will go up the stairs and we put the bathroom in front of you. As you go up the stairs, you're scanning because you want to know what's coming. And the first thing you will see, because the door is open, is the bathroom and it is the radiator and the sink. So that's where you put your money because that's where your feeling first comes from as someone walking around. So we spent more money on that radiator than any of the other radiators because it had to be a really beautiful radiator because it gave you the opinion of, oh, this is a nice development. This is not your normal development. No. And it achieved now, all the rest. <laughs> yeah, all the rest were just your normal white radiators because they were either tucked in because where you walk into those other rooms your eye is taken elsewhere and it's all about where does the eye go there's another moment as you went around the corner and you entered into the lounge that followed through into the kitchen again I noticed people naturally stop at these points so it's really important when you dress that at that point their eye is taken right the way through because it was a relatively small lounge yes so we put some stunning artwork into the kitchen at the back because their eye would be drawn straight to there so it automatically feels big yeah so now this is a big point so it really is the fact that it's no good just thinking about when you're doing a development like that in chunks it's you've got to understand the whole project from the moment you start work to the moment you finish it and then work through because even down to the fact that you needed the eye line of those artworks to take you through meant that you couldn't have something in the way that was structural. And having been in those rooms, I know it absolutely did work because you did just keep, it just was one one spot after another. You go, oh, wow. Oh, no. Oh, wow. Wow. As you went round. And that's what you want, isn't it? Because it wasn't that you, you know, you didn't overspend because this was very much a project you wanted to make money on. So you had to make sure that everything worked. So what what did you think out of that whole project was the most annoying? What held you up the longest? Services. Really? Right. Yeah, that was, uh, it, unfortunately, water was our biggest problem. Thames Water were, yeah. And, 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 you know, they had their own problems of their own, I believe, at the time. I noticed they were probably going bankrupt and all sorts of things going on. Uh, but we happened to fall into this time. And you know what? Some traders at the start said, have you got your water sorted? Because it will take eight months. And I was like, it's not going to take eight. I'm not having that. And actually it did. And luckily we did start the process really early on. But what what did you have to do? Because presumably there was water to the premises. Yeah. So we had water going in, but obviously only as 
one place because it was one unit. One unit, yeah. So we had one water. What well, where we were lucky is electrics. We had three phase going in, and we wanted three fat, three flats. So we were really lucky in the fact that they let us split that three phase down. So that's, I mean, that saved us a fortune. Just knowing you could do that. Yep. Um, and we were really lucky in the fact that the bloke that came allowed us to put some internal cabling in to allow it to go for, to the three flats in a very small space, but he allowed that. So, I mean, that saved us a good few grand. Yep. Um, but yeah, it was. And we went, uh, there was only one supply of gas. We put gas into the top floor one because it's a two bed. So we let that supply go up there. And then the two downstairs ones, which were two one beds, we then kept that as um, electric. So it was just the water we needed splitting into the, the three. But even that, you've now identified something that most people don't think about. The fact that, you know, how you actually do the services can be dictated by time and space and, and who lives in it. Because to get all the, um, the gas plumbed, that was going to cost quite a large amount of money and might have made the building pretty ugly with the amount of tubing you have to have in the space. And actually, when you've got people piled on top of one another, it's quite nice to feel safe because electricity, that's only one one thing and you can't have... Well, I've I've had a problem with a, a gas cut off before now, so it's always coloured my approach to gas after that. So that was a real nightmare for you. How long did the project take from the moment um, Arthur found it to when you completed it? So it was eight months from the moment we started to the moment the money was in the bank. Fantastic. But when, how long in advance, you know, because it, it's, everyone always forgets there's the finding bit, doesn't it? Was it a few months or even a year before he managed to get it sorted? So Arthur brought this on a, uh, well, didn't buy it, Arthur sourced it on a kind of option. And it was just at the point the funeral directors, they had somewhere to go. And it was just at the point the funeral directors were ready to go, they sort of said to Arthur, right, I'm ready now. So, um, that, so that in itself is something that some people who are new to this have got to remember that you can't always dictate terms. If the deal is good enough, you've got to go with the flow, haven't you? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And 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 it was it was a good one and it could be split nice and easy. So it was definitely worth waiting for, for when they were ready. Uh, and, you know, when you do deals, it's got to be work for both parties. Otherwise, there's not really a deal to be made. No, there isn't. But sometimes you just think, hang on a second, this is all going to work so nicely. I'll do something alongside this as well whilst I wait for this. And one thing that did strike me, because I came in and saw it whilst it was being dressed, is that most people who are doing flips are doing one flip at a time, or they may have a couple, but they're not necessarily next door to one another. So they can all be done very differently. But you had three very separate units that had to be dressed at the same time to appeal to roughly the same sort of audience because that's who's going to come in. But you didn't want them to be dynamically different or dynamically the same. How did you go about choosing the look and what you wanted to put in there? So where we are... For, for both me and Arthur, design is really important. So that followed through all the way through. And although we're slightly different in our tastes, although there's a lot of similarities as well, you can still appreciate good design. So what we ended up doing is there's three flats. We ended up doing one. I predominantly designed one. Arthur predominantly designed the other. And then we collaboratively. Collaboratively? Yes, that yeah. one. Got it. Got it. Uh, designed the top one. 
And then our dressing kits, I had one dressing kit, Arthur had one dressing kit, and then we brought some bits and pieces to sort of create another one. Yeah. So all in all, our tastes actually came together really, really nicely and where they they had different feels, but they weren't too different. And our dressing kits just came together really nicely as well. That worked well. So, And then the selling of it, it's very tempting to overthink the selling process with the agents. How did you go about it? Do you have multiple agents or did you just have one? What worked? So we did see a lot of agents through the door. It had to be the right agent to take this on. Also, probably influenced by Arthur as well, I've become a little bit passionate about upgrading this area of Swindon because it's got such potential. And it has, yeah. And you've got a lot of agents who... Or uh, um, are a bit stuck in their ways and can only be described as dull. <laughs> and these departments, these department, these apartments really weren't dull. They were something quite different for that area. Yeah. So it had to be the right agent. So we did find the right agent, and he was brilliant and very, very new. To, although he wasn't a new agent, he just started a new business, and we wanted to support new business because we knew how difficult that was in, in an area. Now. What happened was, in the end, is actually another agent did find us a buyer because they had someone who was looking for three together. So we had to work that out. Um, and hopefully we've worked it out that everyone sort of was ended up being happy with the with the result and we didn't tread on anyone's toes. But uh, so we kind of ended up working with the two agents, but we never set out to. But it, it's how it is, and yeah, hopefully it's all sorted now. Absolutely, because of course, actually, everyone forgets that agents talk to one another, don't they? So yes. You you had to make sure that you didn't cause a problem because you are still yeah. working in that area and will continue to do so for some time because you've both got very exciting projects there on the go. But it all worked out well, as you say. You know, all buyers happened, and you've been able to move on. Now, one of the things I do remember is that you know. You spent a lot of time, uh, in the last two years do blur into one another, don't they? Um, actually going and viewing potential projects on the whole commercial to residential size. And you were very drawn at the beginning with uh, listed buildings. I seem to remember you doing a lot of viewings on listed buildings. They are the things that people find really, really attractive, aren't they? But are they a nightmare to work with? What made you, you know, not always buy what you saw and got enthusiastic about? So... I would like to move into the listed building space. I think I've got a skill set that is in non-listed buildings, but I can run a team really efficiently. I know building materials really well. I've got a bit of a passion for building materials and, and sort of finding new ways to do things. So I love all that sort of thing. And But then I find a lot of people who are in the listed building space who don't necessarily have that skill set. Uh-huh. And then they need to bring in a lot of people who charge a lot because they say I can work on listed but actually if as the owner if you've got the skill set to well we're going to do it like this we're going to do it like this you don't always have to pay an absolute fortune to still create and get it done right Mm -hmm. so I do think there's a bit of a space there and I absolutely my passion comes from an amazing building that I could give a life to yeah and that's what drives me and if I can do that really high standard and really well and bring it in on a budget, I mean, that's unknown. Yes. So, so, and, and I think I've got that skill set. So I do see there's a gap. However, what I have to do is I have to make that leap because 
actually going into grade two listed, there's a, there's a, a risk element that is is money. Yeah. You don't know quite how much that money is going to be. So at the moment, I'm just getting far more experience with looking at grade two listed, finding teams that can work on that sort of thing, that have the skill set to do that. And so I'm in a learning phase for that at the moment, still carrying doing what I've always done. But that's where I would like to move to. And learning is very good because I do remember um, on the building you were talking about previously in Bristol, you, there is always a problem when you're working on buildings that have been altered multiple times, particularly over periods when building regs didn't exist, that things will not be quite as you imagined. And I'm remembering your electricity cable in the kitchen. That was quite a surprise, wasn't it, to find something embedded in the wall that shouldn't have been there. Yes, it ran through. Actually, actually, no, that one was on a slightly different one, but it was two flats above each other and the top flat had someone still living in there. And when it was built, they'd run the mains, so up to their consumer unit, I know up to their meter, through diagonally through the kitchen wall downstairs that I was refurbing. And, um, yeah, we'd taken the... Everything was dead and we'd taken the kitchen off the wall and then my electrician was actually just changing the socket. So he was, uh, yeah, just chiseling out for the socket and he hit the cable. And thank God all of his equipment was up to date and everything just blew, obviously. And we were like, how can there be something live in here? Yes. It's impossible. We've cut it all. We've literally cut it. The can't be anything live. And yeah, it was the neighbor's mains that ran up to their meter. And look, oh, yeah, it just really made me think you've got to make sure your equipment's up to date. You've got to make sure he was wearing all the right clothing as well. And yeah. Yes, it, you he, were very lucky. But you weren't, you weren't the first person I know, because I've worked on a building where an electricity cable has appeared in a kitchen wall where it shouldn't be. Um, and so therefore it is now something I always check for with those little funny meters that, you know, those little yeah. ones. Because people forget that they've done stuff and they don't put it on maps. It should be mapped. Um, and also, as I say, building regs didn't exist before the 80s. And so you know, stuff went in some really weird and wonderful places. But it does also, you've just highlighted a really good thing, which many people beginning in, in um, converting buildings forget, is that health and safety is there for a really good reason. And you've just highlighted the clothing that people wear. And the temptation is to go, oh, we're all inside. I mean, how, you know, why are we all being so difficult about hard hats or, you know, steel cap boots and all the rest of it? But when that stuff is there for a reason, it really makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, yeah. And how long did it take you to get that electricity cable sorted? Did you have to cut it off? I, I can't remember what happened. Oh, I um, yeah, I did get it sorted in the end. They, we we had to get it cut, and then we had they ran it outside as it was, but it was all sorted in the end. But it did. But absolutely, so that really it rather proves the point that actually, in some ways, thank goodness you found it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. Good. Yeah, and no one died. And no one died, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, you know, these, this is something that I think that people do not realise is that it's very easy to look into building um, renovations and development and all the rest of it from the outside if you're new. And all you hear is the profit, all you hear is the fun, because it is fun, and the excitement and gosh, well, you know, I've got a fabulous project, all the rest of it. And you don't realise sometimes that this, this is life-changing stuff in more than one way. I have been in a project where quite by chance, 
and again, it's thankfully it's the electrician because they seem to be the ones who pick these things up, realised that actually the sink wasn't earthed correctly and that had you turned on the tap and touched the metal draining board, you would have completed the circuit. And wow. yes, it was a bit of a wow moment because we all just stood there and went, that, you know, the chance of that happening was so high. So it is something I think we all need to remember, particularly we've done, either we're beginners or we've done a lot of this stuff, is that you know, there's always the element of surprise. Building, mm. Buildings can talk to us in more ways than one. They definitely can, yes. yes. <laughs> now, you again, is you are definitely someone who I think is represents somewhere that people want to get to in that you have the fun development, you're always changing and growing in your knowledge and your skill and what you can do and, and, and definitely upping your game, which is more fun. But you've got the bedrock of single lets in the background pumping out your money, which comes in months by month. Now, we're far enough away from COVID now to think, gosh, did that really happen for a start? But secondly, that, you know, you had to work very hard during COVID because you were a self-managing landlord, weren't you? So they, you know, what, what did you learn from COVID looking back, actually? on how to run buildings and things? Oh, COVID didn't, didn't make a difference to me in that sense. Right. What you have to do is what you have to do. I did have to work with tenants on their personal situations. But again, I'm a good problem solver and you just have to problem solve all the time. And going into this industry, I think that's one of the biggest skills you need is just to problem solve. So my biggest challenge was I was, uh, during COVID, I was doing that first commercial conversion to residential and that did, um, yeah, that did provide a lot of challenges while doing that during COVID just with the same issues everyone had with supply. Um, But it was a really good learning curve. I think I'm a better developer because I did a project through COVID than if I'd have not had the difficult times. And having that portfolio of single lets and also commercial is, as you say, it can be looked at as being quite boring but actually, um, I, I wouldn't be without it. it. It It's really, really valuable to have that in place. And so I think people think they have to jump in at a higher level. But actually, it's that stuff that keeps you safe when things aren't going quite right. Absolutely. And, you, you know, as the interest rate changes have proved to us, you never know quite when things are going to come around the corner, which snooker you. And so therefore, it is wise to have um, not all your eggs in one basket, but, you know, have different parts working well and, and being able to do what they need to do. And COVID, I do think, make, I mean, I'm, I'm just very thankful because you manage your own buildings. I'm hopeless for tenants, quite happy to put my hand up to that. I, I wouldn't have had anybody end of COVID if, if I'd had to have done as much work with them individually as you did. But that is your skill set. My, my skill set is knowing that I'm incapable of doing that. <laughs> So this is the fun thing I think about property is that you just learn what you're really good at and concentrate on that. And that makes a big difference. And also building a brand about yourself because you love investment. You work, you know, with JVs and investment people. And therefore people have to, you have to have a brand. And I love your brand because it's Fred and Jean's your grandparents, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they they taught me a lot and they worked really hard. And when I was trying to think of a business name, not wanting to end up to sound like a solicitor, <laughs> a double barrel sort of name or something, I thought, oh, I know, I'll just go for uh, for use their names. And also, it's really good accountability because 
I can't mess this up because they will haunt me for the rest of my life. <laughs> so, so there's nothing like good accountability with that. But with the skill sets, I think you're really right. You, you do grow a skill set and you don't necessarily know what that skill set is before you do property. And then you come in and you start to go, oh, well, actually, I, I'm quite, oh, I'm quite good at that. I didn't, I didn't know I'd be good at that. Or Yes. Um, and I think when you, when you merge with somebody as regards doing um, the joint venture with Arthur, our skill sets are very different. And I think when you merge those together, although you need someone where your skill sets are different, you also need someone that you do cross over well with because otherwise there's not enough gel there to hold you together when you're trying to get stuff done. And obviously things don't always go to plan. And so it's that sort of um, difference, but same that needs to come together. And if you are going to joint venture with people, obviously it's a bit different with my investors where they are, on more of a fixed percentage return for them um i just update them on where i'm at so it's a different relationship i think you have different relationships with the different people and what you're trying to deliver but isn't this so much bigger than anything you imagined when you first came into the you know hidden property world and i think i i don't think your response is that different from people who have got going on i mean i got going on my own and then i you know it was a nightmare time and in just as 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 um the credit crunch hit and i i found that there were people who when you said well i'm in property they didn't go oh bless but actually went really what do you do um let me let me let me spend the whole evening talking to you about this you know that is what's so exciting and vital about going to networking because i know you do a lot of networking as well for anyone who's not really dabbled their toe in because they've come in since COVID into this world, why do networking? What do you get out of it? I network really for two things. One is to meet really good people in property. Yeah, I wouldn't have met some of the amazing people that I'm around now without networking. Um, and then I'm also looking to find new things about what's happening in property, what are people doing, what's a little bit different. Also, who's in the room that's a little bit different, that might think a bit differently? That's generally the property ones. I also network in other spaces to find investors, to find people who are interested in property, but they probably don't want to be so hands-on. Uh -huh. um, and now I'm moving into the space of looking for people who have experience in property that I get on really well with, who might potentially be joint venture partners for the future. So I'm finally looking for those three spaces when I go networking. And there we are. That's that's the takeaway learning there, which is you are not net you are not networking like a sort of floating jellyfish. You know, you're you've got a purpose. You know what you're looking for in a room because otherwise that you might as well be at home watching television. If you know, you've got to be there for a purpose. However, don't don't worry at the start if you are like a floating jellyfish. No, because actually, actually. You don't really know, one, what the rooms which are good to go to. Also, networking can be a bit of a chore and it's quite unenjoyable a lot of the time because it's, you know, you're all in there and you're all trying to figure each other out and, and then you, you want to chat to people, but you want to get through as many people as you can, but then you don't want to look rude and it is a real balancing act. So I think when you first start going, networking is a skill. Yeah. And also every time you go networking, there's not this, don't have this pressure on yourself. Oh, I have to achieve this out of this. I have to achieve this out of this. Sometimes the best opportunities just come from someone you end up standing by when you're getting lunch and you're just chatting. And you, so, so take the pressure, I would say, take the pressure off. Be very, very strict with networking because it, it's all about 
where do you want to be? You've got to do this time as well and yeah. make this time. Yeah. So if you're in a room that you don't like, don't go again. Go and find another one. Yeah. Because it's just not worth your time and energy to be in those rooms. Because everyone forgets that actually there is there's a bigger cost to uh, networking. You know, you've paid your money to get in for a start. But, you you know, when you've got to pay yourself the mileage to get there and then you've got to pay for the drink or the lunch or whatever else it is, you know, this is quite a, you know, over a month, that can be quite a sizable fee, you know, amount of money you've paid out. And you do have to remember that you are a business and you've got to make that payback. Yes. Yeah. But if you know what you want to get out of it once you've worked out what you are and things like that, then it's relatively simple and straightforward. Well, thank you very much, Tina, for finding time to talk to us today. Now, people who've listened to this and got, oh, who is she? Where do I find her? Where do people find you? I hope they say it like that rather than, who is she? <laughs> who is she? I, I can tell you now, when I listen to podcasts and I, I go, oh, oh, who's this person? I must find them. Where are the show notes? You know, And of course, everything will be in the show notes. But for those who listen rather than go and look things up, because we all you know, listen and learn different ways, where can people find you? So you can find me on Instagram. And I put quite a lot of stuff on Instagram. Um, and that's obviously Fred and Jean's. And then I also um, do quite a lot of stuff on LinkedIn as well. So you can find me there. You can find me under Tina Collins or you can find me under Fred and Jeans. And I do have a website that is www.friendjeans.com. Yes. Uh, yeah. No, dot com. Oh, no. Or com. <laughs> anyway, you got it. I've got it. It'll all be in the show notes. But thank you very much. And I can't wait to see the next lot of buildings that you do and hopefully come and see Arthur at the same time. And Swindon, which I, I know is the most fabulous place. It never yeah. ends it until you get there. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. We're, we're, def we're moving into new builds next on a joint venture. So uh, it will be exciting to see how we get on with that one. Great. Okay. Thanks very much, Tina. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Property Solopreneur with me, Rachel Troughton. If you've enjoyed this episode, do hit subscribe and kindly leave a review and share this podcast with anyone you think it would help on their property journey. If you'd like to get hold of my guide for building a successful property business, go to racheltroughton.com forward slash checklist. We only live one life. So let's get your dream a reality through building a profitable property business. If you found my stories inspiring and my content useful, then come find out more about my mentoring and strategy sessions by going to www.racheltroughton.com and book a discovery call with me. The banner link is on every page. Come and create and grow your own property business. That's the shortcut to success.